You had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. And David, hard to believe it, but summer is over. September is already upon us. It's back to school. Students are settling into history class. But this is way more fun to do it on a podcast. A much better format, I feel. So, for all of those of you who are skipping out on the first day of class to listen to the podcast, thanks for listening. And for everyone who's past the school age, thanks for sticking with us and learning a little bit more about history. David, are you ready to tell us a story that maybe we didn't learn in history class today? There might be a story I could tell you. All right, then let's get to it. The question that I have to ask to start the podcast is, Oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's January 1st, 1503, and in the town of Senegalia in Italy, Niccolo Machiavelli, diplomat of the Florentine Republic, is sitting down once again to write his latest dispatch to tell the Republic of what Cesare Borgia, the Duke of Romagna, has been up to this time. And what a story he's got to tell. All right, David, very good job with all of the Italian pronunciation in that section. This podcast might uh, leave me struggling if we're going to do so much Italian. But tell me, what is the story that Machiavelli has to tell? To sum it up quickly, here in the town of Senegalia, Cesare Borgia, who only a month before faced a full-scale revolt from the officers of his army who were unhappy with how he was running his duchy on behalf of Pope Alexander VI, his father, has turned everything around by a combination of cunning diplomacy. He's reached out to the King of France, bribery, which is his classic method, and of course, just a touch of treachery, he's managed to convince the entire army to come back, join a new siege led by his chief military engineer, Leonardo da Vinci, who you may have heard of. I have heard of him, David. Uh, He was great in Titanic. (laughs) No, different Leonardo, different Leonardo. Okay. Different Leonardo. And once he finally managed to get that army back, in theory, under his control... He has, just the day before, December 31st, 1502, arrested all of the leaders of the previous conspiracy against him and is preparing for their execution. That is a dramatic turn, David, and sounds like it will make for a great story for Machiavelli. But before we get there, maybe we need to set the scene a little bit in Italy at this time. It wasn't really Italy at this time, was it? No, it's not a country, per se. It's not a unified country, certainly. Instead, it's just a peninsula off the south end of Europe, the Italian peninsula, consisting of countries like the Papal States, the Florentine Republic, the Venetian Republic, the Duchy of Milan. Parts of northern Italy are controlled by the 
Holy Roman Empire. Parts of it are controlled by the French. Down in southern Italy, you've got the Spanish. The Italian peninsula is one of the most important parts of Europe at this point, but it's not a politically unified part at all. Okay, so situate us in Senegalia. So Senegalia is in the Duchy of Romagna. Now, this is an interesting duchy politically because, in theory, it's part of the Papal States. It belongs to the Pope. And the current Pope, as I've mentioned, is Pope Alexander VI. And he decided that his son, Cesare, Cesare Borgia, should be the Duke and run it. And in theory, that should be it, you know? His decision, that's it. But in practice, the duchy is almost independent, but it's not really unified. It's almost like the situation of Italy itself at this time period. Every little town in the duchy has its own independent ruler who, for years, for generations, have been able to avoid their service to the Pope and paying taxes and other inconvenient parts of being a broader country because the papacy has been weak and divided and not able to enforce its secular power in this duchy. But now Cesare is trying to change that. So this is a bit of a change for Cesare, and he's managed to actually arrest all of the treasonous elements who were against him. Does that eliminate the threat against him, David? Well, that depends on what you mean by the threat. It eliminates one threat against him. But Cesare Borgia is not just playing in the limited field of Romagna itself. Cesare Borgia is trying to play grand politics on the European scale. So, David, if one wants to expand from just running your duchy in Italy to playing on the European scale, what is that going to take? Well, you need to have an advantage beyond just being an ordinary duke. And for Cesare, once again, it all comes back to who his father is. He's got power and connections because his father is the pope, and this is 1500, and religion, the Catholic religion specifically, is an important motivating factor in European politics. And for Cesare, his goal is to use the connections he's got, especially with the king of France, who himself has ambitions to expand in Italy, to try and form an alliance which can cause both of them to benefit in terms of their secular power by eliminating not just their immediate enemies, but also by confronting the largest empire in the world at this time, the Spanish Empire. So definitely no separation of church and state here, David. They're openly using their connections to the church to increase their power in the state. But is it realistic for this duchy in Italy to take on the Spanish Empire, even with their alliances? In a conventional sense, it's crazy. 
they're way too small. There's not nearly enough power in all of the papal states, certainly not in one duchy, to try and confront the Spanish Empire, seize territory from it, and get away with it. On the other hand, Cesare Borgia is not considering conventional plans. He doesn't just want to fight a war, seize territory, and be done with it. He wants to use his connections, his politicking, not just with the French, but also with the Spanish, to try and convince people to let him hold territory that he would otherwise have no hopes of getting because they're afraid of each other. He wants to manipulate the balance of power between the French and the Spanish to expand his own holdings. And that's an idea that appeals to many of the people around him, especially Machiavelli, the young diplomat from Florence who's already getting a reputation for politics that we might call Machiavellian. All right, David, we've come full circle now. We're back to Machiavelli, and lots of people have probably heard of him, but maybe give us the big-level picture of what you mean when you say that his politics are Machiavellian. So Machiavelli comes from the Florentine Republic, which is a hotbed of bold new ideas in the Italian political scene because Florence hasn't always been a republic and this new democratic idea that they're playing around with even though other Italian states have tried it it's exciting in Florence it's a new-ish kind of idea and that means that anyone can rise to the top and everyone wants to try but it's not necessarily all sunshine and roses either. In Machiavelli's youth, the first real leader of the Florentine Republic under which he grew up was a man named Savonarola, who was a fanatic Catholic preacher who got the Florentines into multiple wars with most of their neighbors through his intolerance of the generally lax morals of the day, while also trying to purge Florence itself of what he viewed as immoral influences. And that means that Machiavelli grew up viewing power as something that you could acquire, anyone could acquire, but also something that you had to acquire. Because if you didn't have power, the other guys would take it, and they would use it to crush you. So Machiavelli, in his later writings, consistently advocates for ruthlessness on the grounds of self-defense. You should always be trying to seize as much power as you can and betraying anybody who stands in your way because if you don't, the other guy will, and then you're going to be in big trouble. Very zero-sum view of politics and diplomacy, David. 
how is this going to work out for Machiavelli and also importantly for Cesare? Well, for Machiavelli, already by this point, he's become a diplomat for the Florentine Republic, which is not a bad job. So in a sense, he's doing well in the Florentine bureaucracy. And now his connection with Cesare is giving him what he views as his big chance. This is his shot because Cesare has big ideas, big dreams. He's sharing them with Machiavelli. He's talking to Machiavelli and getting advice. And Machiavelli views this as a very hopeful sign, a sign that together they can be brilliant, outwit the major powers, win big victories in Italy for both Cesare himself, but also for the Florentine Republic. And by doing that, give Machiavelli a good base for power politics back in his home city. So to him, this is his big chance. This is his ticket to the top. Is anything going to stand in his way, David? This brilliant diplomat with a plan to get to the top? Well, on that morning, on January 1st, that is the high point. That's the moment when Niccolo Machiavelli is looking around, going, look at this, we're winning. He's urging the Florentine Republic to form a closer alliance with Cesare. Well, they have a chance because he's saying everybody is going to be wanting to be sucking up to this guy real soon because... His enemies, his local enemies are crushed. His foreign enemies all need aid from the papacy to support their domestic political positions, are all looking to the Pope. The Pope is his father and entirely on his side. Clearly, this guy can't lose. Unfortunately, that's not quite true. Oh, darn. Because Cesare knows, just as we can see clearly in hindsight, Cesare can see it at the time, that his power doesn't come from his troops. His army is good, but it's small by international standards. With the enemies he's made, the power that he needs comes from the Vatican. And so, almost immediately after his victory at Senegalia, Cesare is turning around his armies and heading back to Rome because he wants to meet back up with the Pope and plot his next move while in contact with his most important advantage. And the Pope is his most important advantage? And the Pope is his critical advantage, is where everything he's got has come from. Because Cesare started as just the illegitimate son of a Spanish cardinal named Alejandro Borgia. And when Alejandro ascended to the papacy and became Pope Alexander VI, he made his son a cardinal. And then Cesare said, you know what? Even though this is the second highest position in the church and no one has ever resigned from it ever before, I don't like being a priest, so I'm going to resign 
give me a better job. And Pope Alexander did. He made him the Duke of Romagna and let him pursue these crazy schemes that have let him seize control of the duchy and become an increasingly important factor in the growing wars in Italy. That's a bold move, David, telling your dad, who is literally the Pope, that you don't want to be a cardinal anymore and you want a new job and not just any new job, a better new job. It's crazy, but boldness has paid off for Cesare. He became the Duke. He won. He's winning. He's got big new plans for how he's going to expand. And he's going back to Rome just to chat with his dad to make sure that they're on the same page for their next stage of the campaign. And he gets back to Rome. And that's when everything goes bad almost overnight. Don't you hate when that happens, David? It's very inconvenient because the thing is, they have a party when he gets back to Rome, as they always do. The parties welcoming Cesare Borgia back to Rome in earlier years have been infamous. If you're looking for details they don't tell you in school, only a few years before, in 1501, allegedly, Cesare at the banquet welcoming him back to Rome after a brief tour of his then new duchy had hired a enormous number of prostitutes and had a wild party in the Vatican itself which they called the banquet of chestnuts presumably because chestnuts were served and it was so scandalous that he had to almost immediately leave the city again because everybody knew what he'd done and thought it was crazy. But this time, the crazy party isn't quite as much fun as that one was. Because this time, as they wake up, predictably with hangovers, the day after, both Cesare Borgia and his father have fallen sick. Well, who hasn't woken up with a hangover the day after a massive party? I mean... It is a little shocking when one of those people waking up with a hangover is the Pope, but it's happened to everyone, David, but they're not just sick with a hangover. No, they're not. Both of them have picked up something. At first, everyone suspects food poisoning, maybe even actual deliberate poisoning. But as the weeks wear on, it becomes clear that no, it was just some local strain of ugly, boring, old, infectious disease that was brought back by one of Cesare's many military adventurers in his court, coupled with a wild night of drinking that probably did nothing good for the immune systems of especially the Pope, who was not a young man. And now... They're both just boring, old, sick. How many, David, great leaders from history have been brought down by just an ordinary sickness? What does this mean for Cesare and for Machiavelli? Well, for Cesare, on the one hand, personally, he recovers fairly quickly. It was a sickness, a disease, probably a cold or flu of some kind 
but that's not necessarily lethal, you know, and he's only in his 30s. He's not that old, so he bounces back. But his father, Pope Alexander VI, dies. And when he does, suddenly, Cesare finds himself in the highest stakes political maneuvering of his career while still recovering from his earlier illness because there needs to be a new election for a new pope and if the wrong cardinal wins cesare is in deep trouble does he regret giving up being a cardinal at this point david it certainly doesn't make it easier for him to try and play politics in the papal conclave but in a dramatic turnaround in the first papal conclave of the year of 1503 he wins he convinces the cardinals to vote for his candidate, a close ally of his father. Unfortunately, that close ally was something more of an older mentor to his father. And older is not a convenient word for Cesare right now, because his new pope barely lasts three months before he too succumbs to the ravages of the illnesses then running around Rome. Oh no, so we've lost yet another pope in 1503, David. So now there's another papal conclave going on, another election. The stakes are high, the bribes are enormous, and suddenly, out of the blue, one of Cesare's greatest enemies amongst the cardinals a guy who Cesare has been working actively to prevent from being elected Pope, shows up with a deal. He says, you work with me to get me elected, and I'll work with you on some of these schemes you're planning against the Spanish Empire, because I've heard about them. I'm not turning you into the Spanish. On the contrary, I think it's a great idea. I'm all pro your dreams of a secular Italian state, and I want us to team up and make me the Pope, you the King of Italy or something, we'll work out the details, and we can do this. We can do it together. Is that what happens, David? Well, Cesare agrees. He gets this new ally, elected Pope, and then... He finds out the danger of playing Machiavellian politics. There's always somebody more Machiavellian than you. Because the new pope turns on him, immediately strips him of his duchy, almost captures him, although he escapes, flees to Naples where he's captured by the Spanish, ends up getting executed a few years down the line. Machiavelli's position in Florence suddenly collapses with his previously great diplomatic efforts now looking like a horrible idea that put them on the wrong side of a new and angry pope. And Leonardo da Vinci is suddenly out of a job, all in the space of only a few months. And all because of, really, the happenstance of illness and just getting sick the old-fashioned way 
just boring old disease. It's affected more military campaigns and military leaders than any other threat I know. So David, where does this leave Machiavellian politics? Well, on the one hand, it doesn't pay off for Machiavelli himself, who returns to Florence, keeps trying to build himself up in the councils of the Florentine state, initially with a bold plan with his new friend Da Vinci, who he met at Borgia's court and who's also unemployed like him, where they attempt to convince the Florentine Republic to change the course of the River Arno so that it will flow to irrigate Florentine fields, but more critically, away from the fields of their hereditary enemy, Pisa. But that scheme comes to nothing. The Florentine Republic itself collapses and is taken over by Lorenzo de' Medici, who was not a friend to the Borgias, does not like this Machiavelli who was, and Niccolo Machiavelli ends up, after a brief period of torture just to make sure that he's not plotting anything, in semi-exile in the suburban elements of Florence, writing a book, a book that he will dedicate to Lorenzo Medici as a resume, essentially, an attempt to get a job. It doesn't work for its intended purposes, but the prince will become one of the most famous books on political theory of all time. And that, David, has huge influences on how politics is played right up to the present day. It does. In some sense, it's ironic that Machiavelli, the advocate for these Machiavellian politics is brought down by other more Machiavellian schemers than he. But on the other hand, it's hard to imagine him writing the book that he did if he were actually in power running an Italian city-state rather than spending his time studying and thinking and considering how best to be a politician. Thanks for telling us the story, David. Always a pleasure, Neil. And if you like that one, we have another podcast about diplomats in Europe, this time from a more French perspective, in episode 31, just a couple episodes ago, uh, The Diplomat and the Five Governments. So if you haven't listened to that one and you are interested in European diplomatic power, I'd suggest going back and listening to that one as well. David... We always like to end with a quiz. Are you ready to play a quiz today? Go for it. All right. Today's quiz is called, Where Did It Happen? Is that title self-explanatory enough? I think I'm getting it. Okay. Let's see how it goes. I got five questions for you. Question number one, where was the first UFO sighting? The first UFO sighting. Oh my. I'm going to have to guess Florida. That's a pretty good guess, actually, but we're going way back with this one. It was in Egypt in 1440 BC. The pharaoh Thutmose III reported fiery disks floating in the sky. That is early. All right, we'll jump forward in time a little bit now. You know the famous bridge over the River Kwai, depicted in the book and the movie. Where was the bridge built? The bridge over the River Kwai. 
Yeah, you're going to have to be more specific than just saying over the River Kwai. I am tempted. It's definitely in Southeast Asia, in the Pacific Campaign of the Second World War. So I'd have to guess Thailand. You're correct, David. It was in Thailand. Uh, it's a bit of a trick question because they were building the Burma Railway. So people often think that it was in Burma, but they were actually in Thailand. And another fun fact, David, the bridge never went over the River Kwai. The railway ran parallel to the River Kwai, but the bridge was actually over a river called Mae Klong. Huh. Sort of a misleading name then. Somewhat misleading. Sticking with military history here, where was the first electronic communication used in battle? Ooh. If I had to guess, I would be tempted to guess the American Civil War, possibly at one of the battles of Bull Run. A good guess, it was actually Tsushima Island in the strait between Korea and southern Japan. This was the Russo-Japanese War, and they used electronic telegraphs in this naval battle, which gave the Japanese a decisive victory over the Russians and control over Manchuria. Ah. Okay, one more military history one here for you, David. Where was the only place that the American army fought alongside the German army during World War II? That would be the notable action at Castle Itter, correct? Yes, which is in Austria. The Germans joined alongside the Americans to fight against the SS to free prisoners. French and Austrian prisoners also joined in, which made it a truly united force that defeated the SS to free the prisoners. Good answer there, David. Last question for you. Where was the first written constitution in history? Where was it written? Written constitution. My goodness, I really don't know. I do know that the Dutch were behind a number of constitutional innovations in their day. Perhaps it was in Holland. We're going to give this one to the Americans, David, in Connecticut, where the Fundamental Order of 1638-39 was written. It's somewhat disputed, but it was the first time men deliberately met to frame a social compact. So we'll go with that. And to this day, Connecticut is known as the Constitution State. Thanks for playing along, David. Always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening.